0: the caregivers are saying no my mom that's the last thing she wanted she said don't put me in a nursing home and then you get to the point where after the second or third year of doing it you are wiped out and that's where the guilt gets so high
1: Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and I work with caregivers to help them find solutions to many difficult situations that arise in caregiving.
2: And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist.
1: And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
2: Here we focus on the caregiver, offer some practical insights, and share some emotional support we might even share a laugh or two. And we all know laughter is the best medicine.
1: And don't forget the wine, Mike.
2: Oh, won't forget the mommy juice.
1: I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, many times we've talked about caregiver guilt and how it can be a heavy burden on the caregiver.
1: It absolutely can. I know that I certainly um, felt it many times during the time we were caring for your dad. And human beings have an incredible ability to, to assign blame to themselves when things don't work the way they think they should. And it's so easy to do that when a caregiver, because there's no one way to do it. You can't get it right every single time. And you never know what's going to happen next. That brings us to today's guest. He's a family practice physician in California. His first novel, Allison's Gambit, was inspired by patients of his who have been caregivers to those with dementia, and his continued observation that these family members often end up with tremendous guilt. His work with hospice has taught him that those who change their views about dying seem to live so much better. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Chris Price. Welcome, Chris.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Uh, That's a very interesting sentence that I just read. Work with people in hospice has taught him that those who change their views about dying seem to live so much better. How about you talk about that?
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, it's such a great point because really what I find is the end of life is so difficult for everybody. And I definitely want to talk about my training. I, I did medical school here in California. And what I think happens is we spent so much time thinking about what I call the sort of easy things that are easy to grasp, you know, whether you're talking about diabetes or heart disease. But when you talk about end of life, there's so much nuance and it takes so long and you can have some understanding from one family and it really doesn't translate that much to the next family that you see. But one thing that I have found to be somewhat universal getting to your question is that when somebody... Finally, in the family, can sort of go. You know what? I'm accepting that. You know, my mom is going to pass away, and it's probably going to be in the next one to two years. There's such a difference in comfort level for the entire family, I find, and therefore that's why I say that quote. Once somebody accepts it, it tends to be a better experience for all uh, that are involved.
1: You know, I'm I'm old enough that I accept the fact that I have many more days behind me than I have in front of me and try to do what we can to, to, do, to plan for that. But we have a daughter who absolutely refuses to even enter the conversation. I, I can't consider that my mom won't be here anymore. And the fact, the fact is, I won't.
0: And that's why I kind of mentioned one family member. It often takes one to change the culture. And suddenly that acceptance kind of starts to spread because the happiness and relief tends to come once there's a little bit more acceptance. The difference, of course, is that we must go to the oncologist again. We must get another opinion. We must do another procedure. And that is incredibly tiring and it really wears people down. And it's not to say that those things can't be important at some point, but usually there's a a time frame. In fact, I kind of joke that when you see somebody, when you walk into that house, I, I joke it's a little bit like that definition of pornography, where you say it's hard to define when I write it down, but I can tell when I see it. And in the case of a caregiving, you sometimes see that person and think they really are if they're tired. They are worn out. They don't need another procedure or more chemotherapy.
2: You know that's that's interesting because sometimes I know in in at least for me with my dad, the decline because I was here day in and day out. Not quite like Bobby was because I had that pesky day job thing, mm. but because I saw him day in and day out, the decline wasn't as obvious to me. Right or to her. So where somebody else, like you say, coming into the room that hadn't been there for months would readily see the decline and the difference where I didn't notice it.
0: Right. So true. Um, And, you know, Bobby, one thing I did want to say, what really started me on this journey, I think I was your average physician most of the time, seeing patients, doing the best I could for them. And then sometimes something happens that really makes you look differently. And for me, it was this patient who was so strong, I was trying to get her to quit smoking and she literally looked me right in the eye and said, I will never stop smoking, which took me aback. And I go, well, why not? And she said, it was her caregiving. It was so difficult. Her mom had Alzheimer's disease. And she said it was such a difficult journey for her. She wanted to make it very clear that she wanted to die before her mind ended up like her mom's. Wow. that, that stunned me. Uh, I mean, it really shook me to the core, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And to be honest, the thrust of the book was trying to explain to other people, how would somebody actually come to say those words to their physician? What would get them to cause them to feel that strongly about death and dying? And dementia, I, I think that the the there's a very difference in feeling. I think she would between having heart disease and dying, and not being able to remember or think of what's going on and dying. It's very scary.
1: And the dementias are so much more than that. And if she was a longtime caregiver, and saw you know your reasoning goes, every, your brain controls everything. Um, right. Your sight, your hearing, your sense of taste, your ability to reason, um, these brain connections are broken in so many different ways and in so many different areas. The person that you knew and loved for so long virtually ceases to exist in front of you, and it 's agonizing it 's absolutely agonizing
0: yeah and and certainly that 's what she experienced and the more well, so from that point, I started writing, I see patients come in. And it would be an off comment like, hey, what got, brought you to Sacramento? It's your first appointment. Well, I came here to help take care of my dad. And I think often I could say, oh, and I would have moved on. And now I don't move on anymore. I'll say, how's that going? And these conversations have helped me really be, have a much better understanding of the difficulty. And I guess I find it universally, it's never easy. It's just hard in different ways. But it's never easy.
2: I suspect you as a physician saying that to the person kind of makes them feel differently too, as opposed to just blowing by it. It's, oh, this Dr. Price, he cares. And there's (laughs) kind of a connection that you kind of get me.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's so true. And we all need that. I mean, we all need to say, hey, someone understands this. And the other thing I found, and when I look at it and when I hear the stories, and again, I think of my training and who I used to be as a physician, and I like to think you keep on evolving and getting better, um, but I would remember you just said, well, it kind of looks like, you know, your mom or your dad or your uncle, whoever has uh, dementia, and you sometimes might just write a referral and leave it at that, and not recognizing it is a huge diagnosis. It's an incredible burden. And to just sort of leave it at that, the medical community is just not great. I would argue here in Sacramento, where I am, and I'm probably not that different from a lot of communities. If I write that referral for neurology, they probably won't be seen for four to six months. Um, By the time they get seen, then they're going to need some lab work. And then they're going to need a head CT scan. And then they come back. It's another few months. And it could easily be a year before that person's actually started on a medicine that might help them. And that seems like such an incredibly long time to miss.
1: What kind of training, if any, do doctors get in recognizing and helping patients with one of these dementias?
0: With regards to helping, I don't know if there's any specific training. Yeah, Recognizing, I think the classic is the mini mental status exam which, oddly enough, I don't use. Um, But I think that's what it was typically taught. Um, I I prefer the Montreal Cognitive Assessment generally um, as as my quick tool. But in the end, um, I don't recall much at all from medical school with end-of-life care and just discussions, caregiving. It's, as I said at the outset, it takes so much time And medical school is just more volume, information, here you go, Um, diagnose, treat. It's not so much built to say, how are we going to compassionately help somebody through this incredibly difficult period?
1: You know, it's interesting. I, I did a presentation at a dementia conference in Toronto a few years ago, and almost everybody else who was presenting was a physician or a scientist or a researcher and and i talked about the impact about being a caregiver and how women are dying as they go through the caregiver years and as i was speaking i could see these doctors and researchers sitting up straight in their chair and act, really listening and one of them came to me afterwards and he said now i understand why some caregivers Resist when we want to release the person in their care from the hospital. Because even though you're there and you're, and you're monitoring what's going on in the hospital, it's also an opportunity to sleep or take a shower or just breathe for a few minutes. And it was evident to me from that comment that he and maybe some of the others didn't understand the impact on the caregiver.
0: You know, it's so funny. My my first job when I was at uh, college, I just, it was four hours a week, and I would see this lady, um, I'd meet her to take care of her husband. Her husband had dementia. I knew zero about dementia at that time. And I would get there, and when I first began, first few weeks, she spent time talking to me and making sure everything was okay. After a few weeks went by and she felt comfortable with me looking after him. She left the second I arrived. She'd stay the entire four hours doing whatever. I don't know if she did shopping, did her hair, talked with friends, but she needed that respite. And it was, I I thought, I realized, and then I thought later on now, I go, I gave four hours in 168, and I felt I was doing something good. Um, And I'm thinking, gosh, she did the other 164 hours. I couldn't imagine now, when I think back, how hard she must have been working.
2: Yes. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, Bobby wrote, a, I think it was a blog post a while back. And I think the title was, Give a Caregiver a Bath. Oh, yes. The, the <laughs> yeah. title for shock value, but the, the point of the article was, come spend some time so the caregiver can have time to just take that bubble bath relax, um, you know, maybe read a chapter in a book or something in the bubble bath, but have that downtime, um, whether it be a half an hour or an hour or two hours or four hours in your case, it was so, so, so important to have a little bit of downtime.
1: Well, you know, that that podcast came about because what what's now a funny story, but at the time it, it wasn't. Um, I had gotten his dad up and, you know, changed and fed and, and medicated in front of his favorite TV show, and I came downstairs and I was working and, and I needed to go to the bathroom. So I'm sitting there on the toilet with my, with my pants, you know, down, and I hear him, Bobby, 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 come quick, I need you. <laughs> so I just jumped and ran up the stairs with urine running down my leg, for him to tell me that the remote wasn't working. (laughs) So what I needed at that moment was to take a shower, and I needed somebody to be there to watch him. So that's where that, you know, give a caregiver a bath. Um, You know, sometimes you just need that little extra support. Now, Now that's one of my favorite stories to tell, but in the moment I was just crushed. I mean, here I am, exposed, uncomfortable, wet, and the TV remote's not working. <laughs> <laughs> not one of my finest moments.
0: That's that's a great story. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you know, one other thing, and you kind of bring that up, is the the absolute fatigue a caregiver can have. And... I don't know. I really find that I wish there was at least two or three lectures in medical school about sundown and mm. um, there mm. were none. And I can say, I really didn't get it until you start doing things. I love doing home visits. It's something I really cherish is seeing somebody in their home. But when you see the complete fatigue of the caregiver and they're begging you, could you please give me something to help him or her just settle down at night? And that's when, gosh, it was probably about 10 years ago I heard about this BEERS criteria, which I'm sure you're probably aware of. But the BEERS criteria is some what I would call well-intentioned legislation that came out from Medicare saying, these are the medicines you should not prescribe those over age 65. They have too much potential side effect and harm. So don't prescribe them. Interestingly, every single sedative is on that list. And there you're told, hey, you write the prescription, don't prescribe that doctor. The pharmacist says, why are you prescribing it? They're over 65. Um, Or better yet, Medicare will just refuse to pay for it because that's their way of trying to get you not to prescribe it. And then you, I think it's too easy then as the physician to just say, well, sorry, I can't help you. Um, I can't prescribe it. And it doesn't fix the problem. Yeah, uh, but what what i'd be curious to know what your experience was with sundowning i don't know if that was a part of either of your experiences with your parents
1: yeah absolutely did to the point where it got so bad you know it wasn't sleeping um, for night after night for weeks and months on end um, that i was having panic attacks i was having migraines my hair was falling out i was physically just failing and Mike would s- got to the point where he would sleep on the floor beside his dad. So if he was trying to get up and, and, and wander through the house or if he was trying to get out of bed every few minutes, um, he would be there. But then he wasn't sleeping.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. yeah um, with with my dad, with the sundowning, um, you could almost set your clock. You could tell, well, it, in about 10 minutes, the... The, the agitation sundown, and the suspicion. In. And, and it, it was just like a switch being flipped. And he would be agitated, um, not confrontational in the manner of physical, but confrontational of, I'm not going to do that.
1: Right. You know, there were times when he thought I was poisoning him, I, I was holding him prisoner. Um, he told Mike, I never, I never fed him, which, you know, was clearly not true. <laughs> um, and other times, you know, when we called Moments of Clarity, I was his best friend. Without me, he would have been a goner. Um, so, you know, the, the switch would flip instantaneously.
2: And, and Dr. Price, just for um, your own edification, besides the dementia and a number of other comorbidities. My dad was also diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. So some of those came uh, as manifestations of the of the schizophrenia.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, he'd also, he'd, he'd spend about 11 years in a mental institution from, you know, 1947 to 1960. So he was a lifelong schizophrenic. Um, people ask me sometimes, how could you, how did, to know which disease was manifesting these behaviors. And I said, it really didn't matter. <laughs> yeah.
0: well, and, you know, that's a, this is another great point. And I, I think not only can it be schizophrenia, I think one of the common things is chronic pain. So, you know, dementia and pain. Well, yeah, so many people over 70 have pain. And they're on sometimes, you know, a narcotic a couple times a day. And again, then you say, well, you want to prescribe something to help them sleep, and the pushback can be tremendous. And, again, the pushback on the physician, don't prescribe it. And, therefore, it can be really hard because I feel like this is where there really needs to be more discussion between caregiver and physician, and the physician just needs to be more understanding. And say, you know what, I know there's an increased risk of excess sedation when they're on a a pain medicine or narcotic, but we've got to help this person sleep. Um, And then, and at the same time, and I do know this, people will say, well, do one or the other. I can either help them sleep or give them a narcotic. You make the choice. That's a terrible choice to give a caregiver and a patient. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really unfortunate, but I see it all the time.
1: And, and lack of sleep is dangerous. It it will impact the caregiving as well as the quality of life for both of them. Because if you're sleep-deprived, you could mix up the medications. You could fall asleep with something on the stove, which is one of the things we try to prevent for people with dementia having. It's dangerous to not sleep.
0: It is. And, you know, part of the issue is saying, well, they're more likely to fall. And I tend to argue... But if they haven't slept all night, they are also fairly likely to fall because, you know, that sort of punch drunk feeling you have when you're so tired.
2: Right. I know it wasn't uh, too long after my dad passed that, you know, Bobby w- put a um, a monitor in his room, uh, the, a baby monitor. He
1: mm-hmm. had a little TV screen that I could carry around the house.
2: So no matter where she was, she can kind of keep an eye. If she heard something, she could see. Is he just getting up to go to the bathroom or is there something more going on than that? And, you know, she would sleep with it beside the bed. So she slept with one eye on the screen and one eye closed, Mm -hmm. you know, not really getting sleep. And after he passed, it was amazing. She started dreaming and everything else. Getting Um, that
0: full relaxation, yes.
2: Yeah, that, that there was just such a a burden lift. I mean, nobody wants to see their parents pass away or somebody that you're taking care of pass away. But there comes a point where there's a relief that goes along with it, even though there's sadness. And and then you feel guilty about being relieved.
0: Right. But again, you hear that and you think, okay, how long could I do that? A week, a month? And I think most people would say, but when it goes on and it feels like it could be indefinite, that's when I think, it becomes such a difficulty on the caregiver because it doesn't, you don't know where the end is going to be. Exactly. And the end isn't something you're jumping up and wanting. I mean, the end really is, well, my parent now dies. Um, And I think it's why one of the things I hear over and over again, one good thing I think Medicare has done recently, about 10 years ago, they said every person over 65 is speaking an annual wellness exam. And during that exam, you're supposed to screen for things such as depression, uh, dementia, and ask things about end of life, for example, resuscitation or no, no resuscitation. Somehow we're supposed to get that all in in about half an hour, which I'm not quite sure, a lot, aside from going over all of their other medical problems. But I guess my point is, I think at least the discussion starting to happen, and that's great. But whenever I get to that resuscitation question, almost everyone says the same thing. Well, do everything except, well, I don't want to be in a ventilator. I don't want to be a vegetable. And almost also universally is no one wants to go to a a nursing home. Oh, I don't want to go to a nursing home. And you hear that over and over and over again. And now I feel like the caregivers are saying, well, I know my mom, that's the last thing she wanted. She said that all growing up. Don't put me in a nursing home. And then you get to the point where after the second or third year of doing it, you are wiped out. And that's where the guilt gets so high. And I feel like we just need to talk about this more and recognize what we want is the best care for our loved one. And sometimes in the end, that person, let's say myself, can't do it anymore. And if I can't do it anymore, then I got to have some help in doing it.
1: That's one of the things I, I preach and preach and preach to people. Don't ever tell your parents or anyone you will never have them in a care home because you may not be able to keep that promise. Um, But what you're saying to them, what you say to them is, I will always make sure you get the best possible care. And some people do much better in care homes. And I think that one of the reasons why people say don't ever put me in a nursing home is they have the image of an old nursing home where we've visited a number of care homes. They have so many activities available. They are so well-maintained, and the people that work in them are so loving and caring and knowledgeable that I looked at them once I said, I'm ready to move in. <laughs> so, yes, there, there are the bad ones, but there are some very, very good ones. But the fact of the matter is, if you reach the point where you can't do it, understand you're not abandoning that person. Right. You're still their advocate. You're still going to visit them and, and monitor their care. You're going to be able to rest. You're going to be able to eat. And you can be their family member again.
0: Right. And it doesn't mean you can never stop. It's like, hey, it's Thanksgiving. Hey, come with us for two weeks. You can do that. Um, <laughs> right. yeah, it's not like they're in jail and can never come out. I think that's also a misconception.
2: right. I remember my grandmother, and she was a hundred. she was uh, went into assisted living when she was ninety nine. She lived on her own till she was ninety nine, My dad's mother. Hmm. And for different occasions, it was go pick her up, bring her, um have the family gathering, do whatever needed to be done with the family. And then she would go back. But she was very, very comfortable and thrived. Maybe thrived isn't the right word at 100 years old or 101 years old. But she was very comfortable with being there and having people there to help her, that she didn't have to do everything like she did when she was living on her own. So there is that benefit to it also. Right. Right.
1: In my caregiver support group, I had a husband and wife team in there, and both of his parents had a form of dementia. They were two different forms. And when they were at home, they weren't eating right. They weren't changing their clothes. They had actually um, duct-taped all the curtains, closed, um, not paying bills. When they moved them, they started socializing, the, you know, playing cards to the best of their ability, um, you know, getting fed regularly, their son and daughter-in-law visited them regularly. They improved greatly, and and that's one of the things that we want people to understand. They may not be doing very well at all at home, and it's possible they'll do better in another living situation.
0: Right, and and you do make a good point also. They are tremendously different. Uh, I have a lady who I like who I call the real estate for the elderly. Um, and she just she knows like every place in, in Sacramento and whether it's assisted living, different places to go. And I'll usually turn people to her and say, let her find a place for your loved one. A good real estate agent in that regard can be really helpful because it's hard to look at them all yourself.
2: Right. Like, like Bobby said, we've been to a number of them and we've not seen a bad one. So, you know, the stereotype of 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, I have not seen it.
1: But we also have to mention they're extremely expensive and not everybody can afford them. So more and more of us are going to end up having care at home, which leads to what we do, which is educating people about what they need to care and how to respond to um, caregiver behaviors. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned... Um, The Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test, as opposed to the quick draw uh, a clock and answer three, and remember three words, um, I typically get, now that I go into the doctors for that Medicare thing, um, (laughs) and it's a special appointment just for that purpose that my doctor offers. Um, I'm not sure what the Montreal Cognitive Assessment involves. Could you talk to us and and our listeners about the difference between the two?
0: I, I think one of the things I like about the the Montreal uh, Cognitive Assessment, they have different categories. Um, for example, this, the top part is all visual, visual, spatial. And, you know, you kind of talk about, well, if someone's having more of a problem there, they might actually have Lewy body dementia and not Alzheimer's dementia. Then they'll have one about delayed recall. They have different things to talk about just um, – uh, behavioral issues. And I think by doing it and separating it out the way they do, I get a better idea of perhaps what kind of dementia somebody can have.
1: And that's important.
0: <laughs> it can be very important. And I just feel it's, a, it's an easier tool. Um, and there's just some things about the other one. I, one of the ones I've never figured out, they always say spell the word world backwards. Half my people can't hear all that well. And they always say, what? And then they can't figure it out. And I just find it's just a little bit more cumbersome.
1: Well, another thing that that's, they always uh, typically ask what, what the date is. Well, if you're retired, you may not have any cognitive deficiencies and not know what day it is. Right.
0: <laughs> oh, I say that all the time. It doesn't matter. You've been retired for 12 years. Who cares? Every, every, every day is the same.
2: Yeah, I remember one time I went with my dad to his appointment at the uh, VA hospital, and we live in western northern Virginia. Okay. But the the VA hospital was in West Virginia, about a 40-minute drive. And one of the questions that they asked my dad was, what county are we in? And my dad was... Round Hill, Virginia. And, you know, the, the the doctor started writing. I said, wait a minute. I don't know what county we're in. We live in Virginia. <laughs> you know, I don't know what county this is. So I don't know that that's a fair question and, and a fair non-response by him. Right. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, you, you got to, when you're asking the questions, you got to kind of have situational awareness. Where's this person coming from?
0: Yeah, so I, I, that's why I do like that Montreal one. It does sort of specify in different categories and where somebody might be having a deficiency. It does help break that down. And I, I just also have to say, one of the things that I find so troubling now, maybe because I, I sympathize so much with that caregiver, is the person who's bringing them in and saying, you know, we've been wondering about dad for a little while. Okay, let's, let's do the test. And you watch the daughter, it's usually the daughter, who's brought in their parent. And they can't believe that the parent can't do some of these things. And the look on their face and that understanding, it, it's really difficult to watch when, you, when they see the clock that was drawn by that person that doesn't really resemble a clock very well at all. Um, I actually, I mentioned that in the book because I find it is almost the same overwhelming feeling that you get when you tell somebody that they've got cancer, when the, everything suddenly blanks out, and all you can think of is, wow, I, I realized my parent has dementia, and what's this going to mean to me in the future? It, it's a tremendously scary diagnosis for everybody, and I think that's why I'm so happy. I must admit, I'm thrilled hearing about your podcast because we need more people to understand what is it? And there are parts that are scary, but the more you know about anything, the less scary it becomes.
1: Well, I'm going to ask about the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test because when you mentioned that, you know, depending on the areas that are affected, you can, you know, figure out that it might be Lewy body. And I, I'm always telling people if you get a diagnosis of dementia from from a doctor, you ask them what. What kind it is? Um, it's like going to the doctor and he said, "Oh yeah, you're sick, but he doesn't tell you you have pneumonia or or you know a hearing loss. He just says you're sick. Um, it's not enough just to be told you have a dementia. You need to know what kind of dementia it is.
0: Those, I, I would agree it helps. Uh, but I would also I would also note that the medicines used, are very similar in both diseases. You're trying to increase neurotransmitters in both the most common type, Lewy body and Alzheimer's dementia. And I actually find worse is the persons who just hold off and say, I don't know. And then they don't try and treat at all because treatment can definitely help. And there's so much involved with treatment. But the first thing is, I remember a neurologist once telling me, you know, here's the thing. If you give them this treatment, And it can save them six to eight months off of going to a nursing home. The amount of cost that is on the family is tremendous. And we need to think about that. And we do. We really need to think that that could be a big difference. Starting medicines early can be really helpful. And it's a fair statement. The medicines often don't work all that well. And they can have plenty of side effects. And we need to think about that. But I think we at least need to have them in the conversation as opposed to what I think happens, as I said, too often is just refer to a specialist, wait for a tremendously uh, amount of time before actually trying things. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, I know <laughs> that's kind of packed. And I, I will say that- No, it's wonderful. I'm no, I, I the same person who will say, someone comes to see me at the beginning and they look so frail. They're so, I go, are they eating? They're hardly eating at all. What medicines are they on? And they're on some of these classic cholinesterase inhibitors, and I'll say, let's stop it. Nausea, discomfort is so common a side effect. Let's stop it. And I can't tell how often they suddenly go, oh, they brightened up. They're eating again. They seem happier. So we just, like any medicine, you have to know there's good and there's potential bad. But I think the biggest mistake is just, i say, I hate to say kicking the can down the road because Part of it is the process is so slow, it's relatively easy to do so. Uh, well, well, I can see that. Uh, I'll just see her again in six months or a year and let's see how she's doing. And so it's not uncommon these diagnoses take one or two years or longer, whereas we wouldn't really find that acceptable if it was, I'm having trouble breathing. Um, oh, usually that diagnosis is made really within a month. Um, with, with dementia, really almost any mental illness, I'll throw that in there as well, it can take so long before there's action. And I think part of the problem is it's so hard to figure out if there's a difference between your treatment and non-treatment. You really just need a lot of time. And really, the medical community doesn't have as much time as, as that for most people. Yeah, and that gets me to one last thing. I got to just say, well, maybe not the last thing, but <laughs> geriatrics. We're getting close to it. <laughs> I, I had to look and say, how many geriatricians are there? The, you know, doctors who deal with those over 65. Geriatricians, there are about 6,000 in this country. 6,000. How many physicians are there? About a million. It's no wonder that if someone says, hey, I want an expert to help me, good luck finding one. I mean, they're out there. You can find them in the cities. But even if you do, getting an appointment can be so far out. They just are nowhere near enough. I think it's just not a glamour specialty.
2: So I guess um, one of the takeaways from this is to urge people going to medical school to become geriatricians.
0: It would be great.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: the fact of the matter is if younger people were dying from these diseases, there would be more education put out there. But the fact of the matter is, I'm 72 years old. There are many people who will think, well, she's had a good long life. I mean, <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, we even saw that with COVID, with people saying, you know, grandparents should be willing to take the risk so their grandchildren live. Um, now, I- I'm healthy enough that I plan to be around for a good long time, Um, And I want
2: you to be around. But the fact of the matter
1: (laughs) is, diseases that 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 primarily affect the elderly are considered part of the aging process, and it's going to happen. And yes, we'll keep them comfortable, but there's not as it's it's not as um, focused on treating and helping us.
0: Right, and I that's what I want more than you know. I wrote this book in part with the hope that we would treat this a lot more like the analogy I use is autism. When I was younger, autism, those children were ostracized. They were not part of my school. And now it's recognized, hey, if I can bring them into school, if I can give them more help, there's such a greater integration. The child is better, the family does better. Everyone is happier with this. I feel like we need to use the autism example and use that for elderly care, particularly with dementia. And say, the more we can involve everybody, have opportunities, have different resources that are easily found for people, everyone will do better.
2: Yeah. Um, Dr. Price, a lot of information. My head's spinning. <laughs> <laughs> but it usually, it usually is. Um, and I know I got a, I got a lot out of our, our talk, and I'm sure our listeners did, too. Thank you for being on the show.
0: You're welcome. And again, I can't thank you enough for having this show. I, I'm, I bet you everyone who hears gains something pretty much every week and gains comfort, which is really nice.
1: And I know we learn every time, too.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Which helps us, you know, go out and spread the word. But your compassion and your interest in, you know, making life better for the people with dementia and the people who are caring for them. Um, definitely gives us hope that things are moving in the right direction as far as you know, doctors paying attention and um, doing what they can to add to that comfort and education level. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: You're welcome. I really appreciate it.
1: You can find more information about Dr. Price on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby,
2: And I'm Mike.
1: And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
2: So please, subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us and Dr. Price, head over to RogerThat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show.
1: Roger That is produced by Missing Link a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master.
2: And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between.
1: Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.